Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have Faith Tan. Faith is a graduate student in biology at Caltech and received their BS in marine biology from UC San Diego. Their background is in evolutionary developmental biology, and their current research examines how animals evolved or lost the ability to regenerate various body parts. Faith, welcome to the show. Thank you. So... Excited to be here. Excited to have you. Um, so to begin with, we normally like to ask people, how did you get interested in science? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I feel like I took a very nonlinear path to science. I think that like many scientists, I started off as like the very intensely interested in specific things type kid. I, I was definitely the dinosaur kid. I was definitely very didactic <laughs> about dinosaurs to my very few friends. But, but yeah, I was definitely like that kid. And then I went to art school in high, in like middle and high school and then burned out of that and was like, I need to do something new with my life. When I went to undergrad, I found my undergrad advisor who kind of reignited that like dinosaur kid feeling uh, with the weird animal that her lab was studying, which was the lesser Egyptian jiboa, which I'm like, I don't know if you've seen a jiboa before, but they're like little desert rodents with really big feet and they like bounce around like little kangaroos and I don't know when, when I show them to people I think the funniest reactions that I've gotten are like what kind of Pokemon is that and <laughs> what did you do to that mouse um, I mean both seem pretty valid to me <laughs> that's how I formally got into science I guess like through through that undergrad lab and I kind of reconnected my interest in being very intensely interested in very specific things which like science is a good platform for that kind of personality i think and also i found out that like academic science was was way more creative than science is usually taught at like middle and high school levels wonderful well then how did you get interested in what you're doing now yeah, I guess in EvoDevo, you, which is, I guess, short for Evolutionary Development of Biology, like there's a lot of overlap with regeneration, I think, because a lot of regeneration research is, is looked at from like a developmental point of view, as well as an evolutionary point of view. I just thought that animal regeneration has a really interesting history and intellectual tradition. And uh, But basically, I, I think that that impulse to study something really fundamentally biologically curious was really appealing to me just because like there's something inherently compelling about like cutting things off and watching it grow back and it does <laughs> tap into that kind of weird kid impulse to just kind of do weird stuff yeah oh gosh i, I feel like <laughs> my life is just tapping into that weird kid impulse. yeah take like... things apart and put them back together or in this case watch them put themselves back together i guess yeah, yeah, it's like, that's sort of like, but what will happen, though? And, I, and it's so interesting to see that captured in, like, scientific history, um, because a lot of it is very, you know, detailed observational studies, the kind of things you probably don't see as much um, in, like, regeneration literature now, suddenly, which is a lot about, like, understanding the molecular mechanism behind the process. But, you know, people used to experiment on like a really diverse array of organisms and really document the process really carefully because it was in that period of science where like the qualifications were mostly that like you were rich enough to just wander around <laughs> yeah <laughs> wander around the beach pick up some weird like people at the beginning of 
of what we often consider contemporary science, really we're living high on the hog in terms of the low hurdle that they had to clear (laughs) for publicability. Basically, you could get a publication out of, I saw something weird. Yeah. Which they just won't let you do anymore. It's it's yeah, it's an insult, really. <laughs> you can't just be like, well, it was weird and I, I saw it. Here are some drawings. Or, or it would be like entire philosophical like treatises on the subject. And and they'd be like, here are my thoughts, which clearly extrapolate to, to universal laws of the, <laughs> of the scientific world. I'm just going to submit this for publication and all of it is going to be taken incredibly seriously. Those were the days. Except they also weren't the days because science was even more racist than it is now. Yeah, it's like who got to do that kind of thing? Yes, the pros and cons. Pros and cons. I think it's owed owed to like marginalized people. (laughs) We didn't get to do that then. (laughs) Let me publish a paper on... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on my weird observations about weird animals. It's only fair. It's only fair. It's only fair. Hundreds of years of hits that, man. <laughs> well, then, so I think a good starting place might be to define what the parameters of regeneration actually are, because I think this is one of those concepts in science that a lot of people have an awareness of, but their awareness comes from like spider-man yeah that's true really. like there's a very pop culture image of uh things just growing back suddenly i i think that there is uh hmm, interesting uses of the words regeneration in the literature and this is just sort of like my, my so i guess it, it's a semantic quote but i think it's important like there's regeneration as in like replacement of an entire like organ or an appendage and then there's like regeneration on like a cellular level and i guess like most people have viewed those as two distinct things but perhaps there's like more overlap than we think and i guess like i i think that i have an unusual conception of the idea of regeneration because i think that it has a lot of intersections with organismal like homeostasis in general it has a lot of intersections with very fundamental organismal processes like growth, uh, potentially like reproduction. Um, and if we can understand those connections, maybe we can understand the process of regeneration much better because I feel like that pop culture idea of like the the exceptional nature of regeneration, right? Like like the, the whole idea that there are like superpowers based on that. Like this is something mythic. This is something weird without realizing maybe that like it's part of these really fundamental processes it's seen as something really strange but perhaps the ability is more interlinked with much more mundane biological processes yeah it sounds like you know it's the processes involved are the same you see in other organisms they're just kind of like scaled up right yeah exactly um i guess like the way that we think about like for example human regeneration specifically like it gets a lot of hype it gets a lot of like whoa this would be remarkable what if we could just like (laughs) cut off a limb and grow it back but like the thing is that you know us the cells in our body do turn over regularly like we maintain could you expand more on the kind of research that you are doing in regeneration specifically my current like first author preprint kind of focuses on 
inducing regeneration in animals not typically thought to be regenerative. We basically induce some degree of regeneration in three really diverged species, like evolutionary. We, the, it's like the jellyfish, the fly, and mice. And we induce regeneration in these animals, body, like with different body parts, with who, you know, obviously live in very different environments, who are thought to, you know, which are very like different biologically um, with an amino acid, leucine, as well as the growth hormone insulin. And this was a kind of a proof of principle thing, I guess, to show that you, one, can induce regeneration beyond what is thought a normal or a typical extent, as well as you can basically influence an organism's regenerative potential through external stimuli, which I think is a relatively relatively different idea of regeneration because most regeneration work is done in animals that can regenerate. So there's, you know, lots of work on like axolotls, lots of work on canaria. And so I think probably people will be familiar with axolotls. And if they aren't, then Google them because they're cute. But could you describe the second group that you just listed? Yeah. So planaria are these like little flatworms and they are known for being incredibly regenerative. Uh, you can cut them up into little bits and each little bit will turn into an independent worm. Cut off, they can regenerate heads, they can regenerate tails. Like, it, it's really an amazing animal. I think one cool thing, actually, sorry, this is my planaria tangent, but... <laughs> this is a planaria positive podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Planaria valid. Um, <laughs> the, when I was talking about like the history of the, of the field and how people used to just like pick up stuff and do stuff. Thomas Han Morgan, who's probably better known for his genetics work in Drosophila, his first love, I guess, was actually regeneration in planaria. He has like a little book dedicated to the question of regeneration in planaria. And you can see him be like, oh, what's the smallest piece of planaria that could possibly regenerate? And the, he, he, the, <laughs> the degree to which old foundational studies would not pass IRB approval is just astounding to think about. Right? Like, it, it, <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, like, because it's a whole, like, short book, you get to see his whole thought process behind the thing, behind his, each of the experiments he decides to do. And that's just not something that we, we see very often anymore because like your papers have to be like x number of pages long Mm. you can see that he was confused by by some of his findings or like he's like what does this mean and he's like i don't don't know um (laughs) yeah and and later on in life he would actually tell people that regeneration is is a problem that won't be able to be solved well it wasn't in his lifetime because that sucker's dead I know. I, I like to. I like to open presentations with that quote, just just to be like, "Hey, you said it couldn't be done, and do I know anything? No. Do I know? <laughs> <laughs> do I know how this works? Absolutely not." Um, <laughs> and you know what? You're valid. Yeah, I'm so valid. <laughs> well, I'm actually interested in what makes an organism something that we would think of as being particularly regenerative versus organisms that we don't typically attach that to both in terms of like if there's a historical aspect of there are just certain things 
that we've just decided are regenerative and that's sort of been fixed in people's minds and or if there are actually sort of divergent physical properties between Mm -hmm. different organisms that make some more able to regenerate in ways that others can't or don't. Right. I think this is a really interesting question because like I do look at this problem from like an evolutionary uh, point of view. And I, the first thing that I kind of want to think about was like, are there some base physiological correlates for animals that tend to be highly regenerative? Right. And there were a few things that repeatedly come up. And I think that, you know, certainly review articles have talked about this before, but one, like they tend to be juvenile animals, for example, can regenerate more readily than adult animals. Well, this is actually, this is interesting to me. Let's dig into this for a second. Okay, Let's right. take the um, off-ramp to the insect side road because the my understanding my awareness of this sort of is in thinking about, for instance, insects, particularly hemimetabolous insects, so the ones that yeah. sort of hatch out of the egg and look like less complicated versions of their adult cells. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's often, you often read like if an insect in like its third instar, which is mm-hmm. the third stage between molts, loses a leg, then it can sometimes get that leg back when it molts again. And that's just a fun fact that I know. <laughs> And then I can contribute. Yeah, so much uh, foundational insect regeneration stuff is in cockroaches, so... Yeah! <laughs> um, you're all welcome. I didn't do it, but I'm going to take credit. A win for the cockroach community. A win for all. Yeah, but I guess, I guess to relate this back to the highway that we were cruising down, is there a difference that we see in juveniles of groups like members of ecdysozoa, which is the broad clade that includes like all of the arthropods, and close relatives where they do molt and they grow through molting basically is that more common than regeneration in like other kinds of juveniles or is it a general property of while you're growing it is easier for you to grow back larger stuff right so i think this there's a there's a really good carlet in like dysozoa for example where you know that constant growth means that you can regrow things um, and there's also, I think, relatedly, animals that have indeterminate or d- determinate growth. Well, that's, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. An indeterminate growth means like it's an animal that will keep basically increasing in size uh, throughout its entire lifetime, whereas determinate growers will have kind of like a set final size, quote unquote, when they reach adulthood. Um, and I think a really easy contrast to that is it is like for example segmented worms that will keep adding segments <laughs> throughout their whole lifetime so they just get it's just like longer and longer worm this is a new worm fact that's oh. really gonna that, yeah it's really gonna enrich my life i think yeah <laughs> so you know a lot of like polychaete worms so a lot of those marine worms that you that you see the, with with segments like they'll just keep adding posterior segments throughout their lifetime and how big they get is basically constrained only by their lifespan mostly. And then there are determinate growers, um, for example, also a segmented one like like leeches that have a specific number of segments that they're gonna reach and then they they stop. Leeches are a really interesting case because most segmented worms can regenerate really easily. If you just cut off the posterior part, they'll regrow that posterior part, but leeches cannot. Huh. And they're like the one of the notable exceptions. Uh, in in that clade, and I think yeah. So we have like 
you know, a question of juvenile versus adult, uh, indeterminate versus determinate growth. And then I think the last big correlate, like broad brash correlate is whether something is warm-blooded or cold-blooded because cold-blooded animals tend to, if you, if you, especially if you think in invertebrates, cold-blooded animals tend to be able to um, regenerate better than warm-blooded animals. Broad, broad brushstrokes. There are always exceptions to these cases, and I also think that the exceptions are interesting. But like, if you think of, for example, a zebrafish, which is like well known to be able to regenerate like its heart fins, versus like some something like us, where I don't hmm. think that would go over quite as well. <laughs> Spider-Man lied. Exactly. Well, he did become a lizard. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm interested, actually, is the difference, is there a, a property related to being cold-blooded that makes regeneration easier, or is it kind of in the area of it is probably related to other characteristics and it just happens to map onto those? Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that all of the carlets that I've mentioned, they all kind of relate to some sort of energy expenditure and the differential amounts and rates of energy expenditure. So if you think about like a warm-blooded animal, it needs to expend a ton of energy just because sort of maintaining organismal homeostasis. Well, could you briefly, just for the plebs in the audience, <laughs> could you define organismal homeostasis? Right. It's like kind of like your 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 steady state, right? Your equilibrium your your animal's equilibrium state that it would generally be at right if it if it was it was continuing to be alive staying in the same place same place quote unquote in a physiological sense it actually takes a ton of energy expenditure just because everything looked quote unquote normal biologically quite a lot of things have to be happening to maintain a base rate level of various physiological parameters at which an organism is comfortably alive i'm t well you can't see me because we're not using video but i'm shaking my head at the trials and tribulations <laughs> of being a mammal. Right. Everyone's like, oh, mammals, they're so cool. I'm like, no. It <laughs> we're not even a good, like, we're not even hairy, which is the main selling point of mammals. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not, we're not fluffy. Um, we got a, we have a spine that hurts a lot. <laughs> we can't regenerate really well. I, I don't know. All this for a large brain and bipedalism. Yeah. Was it like, worth it? Was it all worth it? Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, just the large brain to be able to comprehend the, the trade-offs that we made. <laughs> just how sad it is that we yeah. don't have fur all yeah. over our bodies. Yeah. Although I will say I don't like other primates that much anyway. So really what I'm saying is that I wish humans were all cats. Yeah, man. It, I, gotta live, I gotta live in my truth. <laughs> but okay, so I, we took a long off-ramp and we've um, sort of been milling around the little town. But yeah. maybe we can get back onto the highway. And we were talking, you were talking about how juveniles often have more regenerative capacity than mature animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you think about animals that have regeneration abilities as juveniles, for example, a frog, like uh, tadpoles can regenerate tails and they can regenerate the rudimentary limbs up to a certain point. But frogs, generally, if you amputate a limb, you'll just get this like cartilaginous spike back and you won't get like a the web foot but if you think about the process of 
growing up it's it's a process of really intensive energy expenditure and i guess what i'm getting at is that all the all the processes that i've listed involve um some sort of metabolic process at an organismal level they all kind of come back to an organismal metabolism that can either change the amount or rate of energy expenditure and i guess like my research hypothesizes that if you can you can sort of change the parameters of animal metabolism you might be able to change their regenerative ability as well mm. can we talk more about the sort of mechanisms that control regeneration like molecularly oh boy um <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, okay, so I think that molecularly, um, you do see like the same kind of like pathways come up, um, and you do, I think, see a lot of reactivation of developmental pathways. Uh, Could you describe what you mean by like metabolic pathways? So certain nutrient, certain like environmental stimuli, in in, in my case, or nutrients or amino acids will basically stimulate the activation of molecular pathways that sort of tell cells to do some things like hey it's time to grow hey it's time to proliferate or hey um this is it's basically taking an input and turning it into a cellular output what are the steps that that kind of pathway entails you know like i i think i've been talking about it in incredibly general terms and that's because i've been looking at it from such a broad point of view that, that those pathways are kind of going to differ from organism to organism could you describe sort of an exemplary one so the signaling pathway is basically a way to propagate information between cells right you have all these extracellular signals called ligands usually that bind to a receptor a receptor will will then send more signals through a network of interactions, usually through other proteins, whether directly or indirectly. And this will culminate in some sort of response. And this response can be like, hey, I'm activating more genes, or it can be like a specific physiological or cellular response. So a pathway is basically like a way of cells or something, getting a message and then causing sort of a cascade mm -hmm. of different interactions that causes something to happen, like at a molecular level. Yeah, yeah. So stepping back in from the uh, pathway tangent, I, th I think you were talking about pathways. Yes. So the, the thing about, I guess, a lot of like developmental pathways and how they're typically studied in regeneration, they tend to be pretty conserved. Um, and they tend to be the same ones, which is why people have tried to study I'm, these. Sorry to interrupt again, but yeah. I think you're using a lot of great evolutionary terms, but conserve just meaning that they don't genetically, they haven't changed a lot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. between different organisms and over time. So a lot of these uh, pathways are studied in regeneration uh, because they're used in development. So it's kind of like, if you built this one thing before, uh, maybe we can activate it to build this thing again. So for example, in, in mouse digit regeneration, there's a lot of study of like the wind pathway. Um, if you, if 
finally my specific example uh, because I realized that no, none of the other animals in that preprint actually like normally regenerate on their own. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, another side note, like people seem to be the most surprised about the mouse result, but mice do actually have some limited regeneration ability in the in the in the very distal most like the really edge of the finger basically what the work did was like push that back <laughs> push that point back and that's actually pretty consistent with for example like human children's ability to regenerate the very tips of their fingers i was actually thinking about that yeah how much is a tip like <laughs> how much is it? so actually for mice it's been really rigorously quantified um it's like the it's about the first third of the first phalange of the finger, and it's the very first third of that for mice, and it seems to be about the same for children. Um, so if you if you got a child, <laughs> why don't you go test this out? Don't do that. That would be child yeah. abuse. Yeah. Do do don't not do, do not chest test out regeneratively <laughs> in children deliberately. But good news, if your kid's really into knives. It would be fine, actually. <laughs> um, kids are into all kinds of... Listen, if your kid is really into knives, kids are into all kinds of stuff. No judgment. No judgment zone. I think an, an interesting question then is, what signals does the body get to regenerate? So I think this is a question that's like kind of like up in the air right now, in my, at least in my work. And I think that basically... There's a connection between that signal to, for example, grow or proliferate. Um, like there may be a specific energetic barrier to regeneration that is is kind of like upstream of any sort of developmental reactivation. Perhaps if an animal has enough energy to regenerate, it might be more inclined to go that way. There was a paper about comb jellies. Uh, um, like, uh, do I need to explain what a comb jelly is? Uh, it's a yeah. they're shiny and they live in the sea. Yeah, and they're shiny. They're, they're shiny alien blob. To human experience. <laughs> they're shiny blob. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, these comb jellies basically they they tested their regenerative ability under different like food regimes. So they they fed <laughs> some of them a lot of food and then some of them were starved. And usually you, you, they typically are known to have the ability to regenerate like their whole body. So if you cut one in half, you'd expect it to grow back. This is a real ship of Theseus problem if you regenerate your whole body. Yeah, you're like, you know, make a new one. Basically, under the starved condition, some of them were like, you know what, I'm fine. And they just basically wound healed it up and lived as little half animals. And so that you had a much higher rate of regeneration in a regenerative animal that was given more food. And so I kind of want to look at this question in animals that don't usually regenerate. Like if if the environmental parameters were more favorable, would they be able to do it? Well, I have another question, which is, so I, I think an intuitive thought that a lot of people would have is that it's difficult for stuff like mammals mm -hmm. and probably vertebrates in general to regenerate limbs for example because mm -hmm. those are very complicated structures mm -hmm. but is this actually 
like a legitimate distinction that a human limb is more complicated to regenerate than for instance an insect limb between instars or is this just kind of a a a mammal centric point of view and there are other things that are really restricting the ability to to regenerate those kinds of things okay this is one of my favorite you got to it before i could get to it um because yeah i think there is that perception of oh you know a human limb is a really complex structure and it is and, and so that's why it's difficult to regenerate but it's true like you know even insects aside because some people don't care about them enough um heathens i know axolotl limbs are really uh, are, you know homologous to human limbs and yet they seem to be able to do it and so i do wonder if it's a question and this is this is all speculation i wonder if it's a matter of evolutionary trade off rather than the intrinsic complexity of of a structure because for example if you think about the steps needed to regenerate a whole limb like that's a lot of cell growth that's a lot of cell growth during injury and there's the potential for things to go wrong and that's why i i i, I do think that there there is a probable trade off there between being able to regenerate and for example and like preventing tumors from occurring hmm yeah you know, the, the, there's that perhaps that there's you know the risk is just too great or the energy expenditure like there's too many things that could potentially go wrong for it to be worth it to regrow an entire limb maybe in in, in mammals i do have a bug aside <laughs> always <laughs> so like i i think like like seeing people react to the preprint like most people are most surprised about mice but like you know you you brought up that insect limbs are really complicated structures too um and i was actually most surprised about flies because we're going to have to get specific are these drosophila yes these are just drosophila they i i was experimenting in them because they were there <laughs> yeah imagine me doing a, a great big eye roll but also kind of a shrug like i get it <laughs> The eye roll is to suggest that, of course, it was Drosophila, but the shrug is also to suggest, well, of course, it was Drosophila. Just in brief defense of the Drosophila, this is Drosophila in a in a different light because not many people actually <laughs> not many people actually studied like adult Drosophila in a on a like a physiological level, which is kind of a surprise to me. The thing is that a lot of insects that undergo metamorphosis. Are thought to be like they—they're not supposed to be able to replace anything. Like that's it. Especially considering an insect replacing a relatively complex structure for a body that it's going to use for maybe like <laughs> a month more. I think that that's like more remarkable than a, a a mammal being able to replace parts that it it's gonna use for like a couple of years more. By the way, um, are you at all familiar with uh, the work Mike Levin has been doing at Tufts University? Yes, I have just seen a Michael Levin talk. Okay, because one of my uh, lab mates uh, is a collaborator of his. I see. That's so cool. Um, oh, man. I, I think that the way that we think about regeneration is like on the same vibe, which is you can cause broad upstream disturbances that will result in really specific downstream patterning events but what yeah I, I just saw a talk about the bioelectricity 
stuff and in both frogs and Planaria and being able to like predict which uh which perturbations needed to be made to cough out a specific pattern. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, what my um, um I think it's really mind blowing. What my uh lab mate has been particularly focused on is like figuring out, okay, where is this information actually stored? You know, how does it know especially mm-hmm. when you're dealing with planaria where mm-hmm. you chop them up into little bits, how does it know to like regrow a whole rest of the organism? Yeah, and actually interestingly that that book by Thomas S. Morgan, like he asked that question too, but he has no way of like testing it. And that's why he was trying to cut planaria up into the littlest bits possible. Like that was one of the historical questions that people had for organisms that could regenerate large parts of their body. They're like, "Okay, which bit is the bit that remembers what the body's supposed to look like, better cut it into as little bits as possible to find that specific bit then. And then they couldn't find a specific part of the body that stored that information. <laughs> and it was very confusing at the time. How does the body, or how do various kinds of bodies recognize that they have suffered damage that would require regeneration at the level of i think you mentioned in zebra fishes regenerating mm-hmm. an entire limb or fin right so i think there's like the initial injury response definitely and then there's a question of positionality as well like how much damage has been done how much things do we have to repair and oh man i'm not super clear on the specifics of this but like there must be some way that the cells understand that there's something missing. And I think if you they, in work with like axolotl blastemas, and a blastema is like an undifferentiated group of cells that produce the um, regenerated organ, they found that basically those cells aren't as naive, quote unquote, as, 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 as people thought they were, that they tend to have certain to grow, they tend to know that they are supposed to grow certain things. They tend to be more fate restricted in terms of what they will become and can become. And it's unclear of like how, I think it's still unclear how they know that to, to grow back exact things. Well, this kind of brings to mind, but are stem cells involved in all of this? Um, <laughs> I mean, Typically, like, yes. I think there's a lot of debate on how stem the stem cells are in different contexts of regeneration. And I think, like... Oh, like, you... does sociology count as, like, a social science? Is that part of stem? But I'm... Bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I think that, um, like, the reason why I've been so cagey about some of my answers is because, like, I... I've been talking about it in like really broad context and I, I for sure know that there's going to be some specialists being like, it doesn't work like that in my <laughs> field. Uh, and, and, and like definitely the way that I've been looking at regeneration is pretty atypical because it's across so many different species, across so many different organ contexts. I think the consensus is that the stem cells involved in regeneration aren't like totally naive, right? That they for example, have certain lineages that they will become. So in the axolotl, there are cells that will become bone, that will become cartilage, 
that will become like vasculature, they aren't always the same cells. And you can kind of pick up those differences with like single cell type sequencing techniques, which you couldn't before. Well, actually, thinking about bone, is there a demonstrated difference in sort of regenerative capacity between structures that we tend that, you know, various kinds of organisms just have at the outset versus things that they do develop over time. Like thinking about bones, I think that, and I'm going to project this onto people in general, because in my brain, that feels like kind of a sticking point because you're just kind of born with your bones. You just kind of have them. And so there's not really a part of your life where you lose the bone and then it comes back. Although we did just learn that children can chop off part of their fingers and probably get them back. So that's not completely correct. But like, does that make sense? What I'm, and I think in thinking about jellyfish or whatever, it kind of feels like their bodies aren't really <laughs> real to begin with because it's just a bunch of goo in the ocean. How complex can that be? Really? Goo bag and goo bags just floating around in the ocean. <laughs> No brain, just goo. So, oh, sorry, what was the question about bones? <laughs> I, I'm not sure that it really was one. I mostly wanted to talk about just the horror of bones, I guess. Yeah. You know, the curse of vertebrates had to happen for the blessing of cats. Yeah, it's a, sh- it's a shame about the whole vertebrate thing. <laughs> it's really an unfortunate evolutionary side path that we all went down. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think Eurocordates had the right idea when when they were like, "Oh, we almost have a spine, but we." I think we're going back to like sponge shape, actually. What you know, assuming your research continues to go along as it is, like, what discovery would you be most excited to make? Oh man, I would love to understand that trade off, like why we don't regenerate for example. <laughs> Maybe if my research doesn't work and I understand why, <laughs> um, I would be, I'd be really interested to, to know what those evolutionary trade-offs have been such that a lot of mammalian regeneration just doesn't work out. Because I think like the current therapeutic approach, and like, this, is, this, is, this is one of my other rants, uh, because I think so much regeneration research is done in the context of like biomedicine and it's kind of like oh it it, it will be an unequivocally good thing um (laughs) to be able to make humans regenerate but i'm like why though why can't we regenerate what what kind of horrors are we preventing um what kind (laughs) what kind of gross our limbs would be too powerful you know what kind of gross biomedical horrors were we was the evolutionary selection preventing well, actually, thinking in in the context of biomedicine, I think, and this could just be my limited perspective, but I, it seems like people normally when they bring that up as a possibility, they're talking about regeneration and, for instance, amputees. But is there also research that's done on more internal stuff? Like if you suffered organ damage, instead of having to get a transplant, regenerating part of your organ uh yeah I, I think that there's definitely definitely um like stem cell therapy stuff 
uh, to try to mm. try try to like grow that back. And then of course, like with a lot of organ transplant stuff, you get the question of like immune rejection and if if the donor could receive their own organ that that wouldn't be a problem anymore not super familiar with the specifics of that because i'm not a biomedical person um who wants to be who wants to be yeah that was my that was like my one i think when when charles reached out um i was like i don't know anything about the medical implications of this um, <laughs> i'm like i i i think weird animals do cool things i i feel a lot I think ASAP will always be a, a a welcome home for people in your position who are like not doing the sort of most high profile version of whatever, because Tess is in astrobiology and I am in history and philosophy of biological taxonomy as it relates to insects. Like neither of us are really, we're not going to get invited to do a TED talk. Let's say that. Well, Tessa might if they find life. Yeah, as it is right now, probably not. But I, I, I don't think I'm going to be. <laughs> They're like, don't come to us unless unless you have aliens. Um, <laughs> no alien, not interested. Which I, which I think is very unfair. I think I think the fact that you guys aren't getting TED Talks is more reflective of the society that we live in. <laughs> Any inherent flow of the research yeah. itself. Thank you so much. <laughs> is actually another part of our podcast but i forgot to tell you about this beforehand i think we like to ask our guests to weigh in on one of several recurring questions that we have so i will tell them to you now number one assuming some global apocalyptic event what do you think you would be doing two assuming you're on the point of total body failure and you have the option to either die outright or put your brain in a robot body do you go robot three is it gay if it's in space this is kind of an open just go what like is it gay if it's with an alien is it gay if it were 400 years in the future and our concepts of sexuality have totally changed free space four are there any medical transition technologies that you wish existed and then five if humans were to build a settlement on the moon slash mars would you want to live there those, those are all incredibly cool questions. <laughs> For the medical transition te- technology, I was just like, good healthcare. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the invention of socialism. Um, <laughs> that's, that was straightforward. Okay, done. Cool. Um, <laughs> but okay, like, for the, definitely the more, like, philosophical bent ones. Um... I think I think I'd, I I think I've heard the is is, is it yeah if it's in space one and and so I I I've definitely like thought about that and I think that like it depends on the context on which space is if that makes sense I like there are two you know I guess like in pop culture there's like two common paradigms of like what space quote unquote represents and. I'm coming at this as someone who does not study space, and so I only have the. I only who have needs the, to? Who needs to? <laughs> who mm-hmm. has that frame of reference? No offense to Tessa and all the space people that are on here. Uh, but you know. Um, and so I think there's like one uh, space is a as a site of there's like the the hypercapitalist dystopia space where like Elon Musk owns the 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 rare earth moon mine and, you know but 
you know, and I think that there's related to that, there's being gay or being queer as as a mode of like categorization and like othering and a way to create that underclass needed for exploitation, which is like the the the, the cynical reading of all of this, right? Like it's still going to persist because like because people need to other other people in order to see them as less than and like justify exploiting them. I think that's the pessimistic pessimistic um, pop culture view of this. But the other one, which I'm much more fond of, um, and I hope that is the one that like comes to pass, is that is to see space and queerness as possibility, as potential, as really the ability to think about new ways to relate to people, new ways to form community, like ways to um, break free of every assumption and every oppressive societal construct that has constrained the ways that we relate to one another, that we relate to our communities. Um, and I think that like that's, that's um, a really interesting idea, um, especially when it comes to space where it's seen as like this like sort of um, broad potential. I guess and and um like the first sort of scenario that I talked about was like queerness as deprivation, but um I think this is I, I think I'm quoting uh the writer Ocean Wuang. Um he said that I think queerness demands alternative innovation and alternative ways of existing in the world. Um and I, I think that in a in a bunch of pop culture space does represent that, and I think queerness like that, that metaphor intersects pretty well. Yeah, that is a fantastic answer. That's beautiful. Aww. Well, fantastic. So, I Faith, it's been wonderful having you on. It's been a real treat. Yeah, um, it's it's been great. It's been amazing to have this conversation. I'm so glad that everyone's someone else that appreciates the hype. Highly niche yet extremely general brand of science that I, I do. Um, That's what we're all about. <laughs> extremely niche. Yeah. And also somehow very general. So Faith, if people want to find out more about you or your work uh, online, where should they look? Um, it's just at Faith Han and uh, Twitter. Um, that's Faith with a Y. Uh, and I think I linked my personal website on my Twitter. Anyway, um, yeah. It's mostly it's mostly just my Twitter. I'll talk about any forthcoming work. Probably talk about my preprint when it becomes a real publication at some point. Um, yeah, it'll be on my Twitter. Wonderful. Um, I am on Twitter at cockroach arles and Tessa. I am on Twitter at spacermace s p a c e r m a s e. The show is on Twitter at asabpod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, asabpodcast.com. And if you like the show, uh, <laughs> please tell other people you think might also like about it, because that's how people listen to podcasts. And until next time, keep on sciencing.